thanks for listening to the Jazz Johar Show podcast today on the pod. Political explosion, Abbotsford, South MLA, Bruce Bandman flees BC United, jump ship to join the BC Conservatives. Is BC's official opposition on a death spiral? And will there be more defections? Plus, we look at Metro Vancouver's industrial land shortage and how it's costing the region thousands of jobs. And what's with Premier Eby's hate for Fleetwood Mac? We investigate. That's all next on the Jazz Johar Show podcast. Let's get to our top story. Bruce Bandman, the BC United MLA for Abbotsford South, has crossed the floor to join the Conservative Party of BC. Bandman will now join BC Conservative leader John Rustad in the legislature and now with two members will be granted official party status, which means more money, resources, staff and attention for the party. Bandman was the BC United critic for emergency management and climate readiness. He was elected in 2020 and is a former Abbotsford mayor. He spoke to our colleague Mike Smith today and was asked why he decided to leave his party. Take a listen. I was unable to be an advocate on behalf of those who elected me. Um, And there was one particular vote um, where it, it really wasn't even a legislative vote. And Um, I was told, if you are not in favor of this vote, uh, you must leave the building. You you cannot vote against. And I just kept going back to that. And um, I I was humiliated. And and I will say, when I thought about my grandparents, I was also ashamed that I did not speak up on behalf of those in this community that wanted me to speak up on that particular issue. And which is which issue? That's just one example. Bruce, which issue is that? Which vote are you talking about there? Um, that was the divisive, um, hurtful vote, the, the wedge politics that the NDP put in that had to do with the convoy and, um, and how the pandemic was handled. That was uh, Bruce Bandman speaking to our colleague Mike Smith earlier today. Now, Mr. Bandman, on that very program, was also asked if he believes other BC United MLAs would follow his path and leave the party. Take a listen. Well, I don't imagine I'm going to be on the Christmas list coming up shortly for some of them. Let's face it. I mean, um, they, of course, they're going to be upset. Um, but there are others, and I'll let them speak for themselves. I'm not the only one that is shown uh, increasing uh, discontent uh, within the party. Um, I'm not alone in that. I'm not alone in that. Well, lots to unpack on this developing story and no better than our next two guests to do the job. We're joined by Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman. Keith, of course, is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief and Richard Zussman is Global BC's Legislative Reporter. Keith, Richard, welcome. Hey, Jess. Uh, hey, Jess. Hi, Richard. Let me start with you first and foremost. Uh, what were you hearing over the last few days in regards to how this all sort of transpired? Yeah, so my understanding was uh, late last week into the weekend, uh, Bruce Bandman was growing increasingly frustrated with what was going on uh, internally. Uh, this comes following some substantial polls that we have seen that show uh, the BC Conservatives rising and BC United falling. In some cases, polls are showing that the Conservative Party of BC, if the election was held today, would do better province-wide than BC United would. And, and based on on that combination of factors, that frustration around how Bandman felt treated within caucus and the fact that there seems to be a growing misfortune for the party, uh, he ultimately decided to air uh, that displeasure to the party brass uh, 
in the form of formally leaving uh, BC United to become uh, the second Conservative Party of BC MLA in the legislature. Hmm. Now, Keith, you and I have been talking about this issue privately uh, over the last month or so in regards to whether or not anybody would be leaving, um, at least uh, public here, public now that it's at least public. What do you make of all this at this point? Well, first of all, I don't quite, I don't think it's, you know, over the weekend, I was talking to a lot of people about this. There was a lot of chatters, Richard was saying, a lot of chatter about it. it wasn't just Bannon, other names have been kicked around as well. It wasn't about wit votes and about being forced to vote something one way or another. That's part of the parliamentary system. You buy into that once you become an MLA or an MP. I mean, this is how our system works. You do vote the way you're told to vote on a whip system. Uh, so I think the bigger, as Richard points out, the bigger issue here is this threat uh, from the BC Conservative Party, which is fueled in two ways. One was the ouster of John Rusted by Kevin Falcon from caucus, which of history in BC, that doesn't always work out the way you think it's going to work out for either side. Mm-hmm. The second is this phenomenal growth in popularity of Pierre Poliev and the Conservatives at the federal level, which I think has had an, an inevitable uh, bleed-off effect into BC and the fortunes of the BC Conservatives. And then the final factor is this continuing identity crisis the BC United Party has, where no one understands who they are, what they are. The average voter has no clue who they are. That was reflected in the by-election results. And I think you've got a bit of panic going on in the caucus, again, which I don't think is about with the votes or being people being treated one way or another. I think it's about self-preservation, that a number of MLAs are realizing, given the circumstances they find themselves, uh, if an election were held today, as a BC United MLA, they would face an uphill struggle, not just not against the NDP in their own backyard, but because they represent historically conservative areas, particularly at the federal level, which translates sometimes to the provincial level, which used to like, um, elect BC Liberals, but BC Liberals are no longer part of it. And they had inherited the Conservative vote for a long time. They're gone. Mm-hmm. Now the Conservative Party's there. And so you've got, a, I think, a number of MLAs who represent historically conservative areas in BC worried about their, their political future, not because of whip votes, but because the BC Conservatives pose a direct threat to this party that has yet to establish themselves. Hmm. Now, um, Richard, what does this mean for Mr. Falcon? Uh, it's he booted one MLAO, John Rostad. This one has left voluntarily. Um, can he still hold on, or do you think that's incredibly premature? I would expect that Kevin Falcon will be the leader of this party through the next provincial election, but mm-hmm. he's going to have a hard time here managing his caucus. You know, we've alluded to members that are currently sticking around that have talked about what comes next for them. That may be joining the BC Conservatives, although when I asked Kevin Falcon that today, he's insistent he does not believe any more people are leaving. But the more likely outcome, Jazz, could be uh, some MLA saying, I'm going to go run federally for the Conservative Party and leave provincial politics, uh, which could leave a hole uh, in caucus for BC United. Some of that will be based on the timing of the next federal election, but it will also be crucial to watch clearly. So there's going to be some mending of the fences that needs to be done to try to shore up uh, the right wing of the party. And, And what that may mean in the big picture, Jazz, is that this party, BC United, feels compelled to shift to the right politically, uh, which will be the death knell for them because it will allow BC United to walk easily to victory in the next provincial election. And just, you know, it's not about the BC Conservatives winning 
a load of seats. This could potentially be about them gaining, you know, hundreds or thousands of votes in a certain writing mm -hmm. and altering the outcome because of that, that the NDP could win some of these ridings because traditional BC Liberal, now BC United voters move BC Conservative and the NDP, like we saw in the last election, walks through and wins these seats like in Abbotsford and Chilliwack and Langley and Vernon. Mm -hmm. That list could continue to grow. And that would mean post-election, Kevin Falcon would have a very, very hard time holding on to his job as leader. You're speaking to Richard Zussman and Keith Baldry. You were talking about Bruce Banman, the BC United MLA, former BC United MLA, I guess. He's crossed the floor to join the Conservative Party of BC. Uh, Keith and Richard, I, I want to pick up on uh, comments made before the uh, commercial break. And uh, this is a question for you, Keith. How do you attract, how do you, first of all, convince your present MLAs to stick around and run in the next election if the, the, the polling numbers, directly or indirectly, show that you're neck and neck with BC Conservatives? And Secondly, how do you attract quality candidates moving forward when it, it, when it looks like you're in a very tight race? Both are challenges. Uh, the second one is a particular challenge because you're asking people to basically give up the day job, quit your job, and come join us at a time when it looks anything but certain that your party's going to deliver the goods to be government. Well, many people, there's been many people over the years who quit their jobs with the allure that they're going to be in government and they ended up being in opposition. So getting candidates at the best of times is a challenge for any party. Hang, holding the caucus together, I agree with Richard earlier, it's going to be tough for Kevin Falcon. If the polls continue the way they are, if the poll of magic effect continues to have an a afterglow effect on the B.C. Conservative Party and keeps them in the game ahead or even tied with the B.C. United in a series of polls, it's going to be hard, I think, to hang on to some of these candidates in the caucus, particularly when they look at their long-term political futures. Is it best to hang with a party that no one knows, simply because it's a hangover from a party? Party that used to be in power, or is it better to go with a party that historically, at the federal level, does quite well in BC? And that's the conservative brand. Mm -hmm. The conservative brand federally is very strong in the Kootenays, in the, the Caribou, the Interior, the Okanagan, in the North, and the Peace. With a couple of exceptions, the Conservatives own that area and have so for decades at the federal level. The provincial mm -hmm. level, a different story, we haven't had the provincial Conservatives as any factor for years. They were supplanted first by the Social Credit Party, then by the B.C. Liberal Party. But the Liberals are now gone. The landscape is more open. The Conservatives seem to be making a comeback. And therefore, this fertile land out there federally is theirs for the taking potentially provincially. And that's why I think keep your eye on the MLAs in those areas I just named, mm -hmm. whether or not they make the jump. It's, it, now, it takes a, a lot of nerve and a lot of courage to make that jump. It doesn't happen nearly as often people might think it would happen. You've been on a caucus, Jazz. Mm -hmm. The caucus discipline can take over. The riot act's going to be read out. But I'll tell you, it's a challenge for Kevin Falcon to keep this thing together. Uh, in the months ahead, if not in the weeks ahead. We're headed into a session in a couple of weeks. The NDP is going to be merrily chortling on the other side, calling uh, on which one of you is going to cross next. I mean, they're going to be teasing the United MLAs. Who's going to go first? Uh, so it's going to be a lively, lively affair on that front. No, absolutely. Um, Richard, one of the things that Kevin Falcon in a release today said that, that in regards to um, Mr. Bandman, there was an internal management issue. Uh, how much of this 
lies at the feet of Todd Stone, the House Leader, in that perhaps Mr. Bannman could have been better managed. And that you know, I was hearing behind the scenes that you know there's a dismissiveness towards him, not just from the, the BC United, even the opposition, or sorry, the government MLAs uh, from the NDP are rather dismissive. And that you know, it does take some sort of management of people when you have a caucus. Do you think any of this lies at the feet of, of Mr. Stone, or just the way they've handled things internally with that uh, with that coalition? Yeah, as you know, Jazz, it can be a lonely job, right? You mm-hmm. leave your home and you're riding, you come to Victoria, you have these intense sessions where you are attending meetings with your colleagues, you're attending meetings with stakeholders, you're meeting with journalists. There's an intensity there, and it's a very different job than a lot of people are used to. Uh, and balancing personalities, you know, many times these people come from their communities. They were the mayor, or they were a prominent business person in the community, or a fire chief, and all of a sudden they come to Victoria and they may be a backbencher, or they may have a role that they believe is smaller than what they're worth. And all of that. Uh, makes it challenging for leadership. And you mentioned Todd Stone. He is the BC United House leader. Mm -hmm. He has responsibility to ensure that those in his caucus, you know, are kept busy, that their issues are heard, that if they have private members legislation, it comes up, that they get a chance to speak in question period. And clearly they knew they had an issue with Bruce Bandman and his personality, and that was not dealt with particularly well. Uh, The same was said about the issues they had with John Rustad. Um, And so, sure, you can blame Todd Stone, but it's it's much, much, much larger than that. I would put this uh, largely square on the shoulders of Kevin Falcon, Mm -hmm. who promised to do things differently. He is the leader. He has a responsibility to lead both internally and externally. Uh, So I think... It's better suited to put pressure there, but also remembering that this can be a challenging job and ensuring that those personalities are fed, those egos are fed in some cases, so that you don't have a mass exodus that can have a long-term impact on your party. There is a chance here, Jazz, and we've sort of alluded to this, that if things go a certain way, the BC, the Conservative Party of BC could become the predominant centre-right party of British Columbia and, in essence, wipe BC United off the map. We, we saw it with the Social Credit Party, uh, and we could see it once again here. Will that happen? I'm not sure. BC United is raising a lot more money than the Conservatives are. Kevin Falcon's an established leader. But we could be at that that time now, and as Keith spoke to, the Conservative Party federally has such a strong brand. Mm-hmm. There is a chance here for the first time in my lifetime that we could see, you know, or at least my lifetime in BC politics, that we could see that transition to a new dominant centre-right party. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I just don't think you have enough Conservative voters in this in this province to guarantee you a majority government. And the federal Liberal part of that coalition was always the swing vote. It worked for ABC at the municipal level. They got one power back from Vision, who also was able to attract that federal no, vote. It, Rich, right? Richard's right, though. We could be at a, a point here where you could see a sea change, not replacing the the party to become government, but fracturing yes. the, the side. And we saw that historically in BC politics up until the 1950s. The NDP are now attracting that federal vote, one would argue, and they've sort of yeah. broadened their coalition, so they're sitting where they're sitting very comfortably. I mean, it's a centre-right, or that older free enterprise coalition that once was that coalition, and now, you're right, it's much more polarised, that's for sure. Uh, Keith, Richard, thank you. All right, take care. All right, that is Thanks, Keith Baldwin. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. You may recall earlier this week, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke was on this program. We talked about uh, where uh, the city was in regards to its uh, transition. Uh, there was a lot of talk, of course, in July when uh, the provincial government with uh, Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, saying that uh, they wanted the city to continue the transition to the Surrey Police Service. Ms. Locke and her majority are still supportive of the Surrey RCMP. I did ask her about that transition and how it was going. Take a listen to her comments. We're not very far, <laughs> sadly. We haven't uh, seen a lot of progress forward, and uh, that's been... That's been disappointing. You know, there's been enormous challenges for us at the city, and uh, I think the biggest one is that we don't have a clear path forward from the province. The RCMP, the SPS, and I can tell you the city of Surrey have been asking for that plan, but we all have no plan, no path forward. Now, the mayor said, of course, that there's no business plan, no feasibility plan. She has sent six letters to the minister and his representative and has heard nothing so far. We also uh, asked her about the $150 million that was pledged by the provincial government over five years to help with that transition. So that's coming from BC taxpayers. And I asked her, if we don't know what the business plan is, could this transitional cost from that $150 million that was pledged, could it be actually significantly higher at the end of the day? Take a listen. You know, I, I can't really answer that. Um, what I can tell you, though, is that this is a generational decision. And so we know that um, it's going to be more than 30 We expect it's going to be closer to 40 or $50 million more, the Delta, every single year. And when you start to compound that, and that's on the operational side, that gets very scary, but that doesn't take into uh, consideration any of uh, the capital costs that you're talking about because those are also extraordinary. IT, you're right, is is very expensive, but there's lots of other um, issues, and we haven't seen those budgets come from the uh, Surrey Police Service to know exactly what they're looking for at this point. So the mayor says things are up in the air. Well, our next guest says that, look, uh, let's get on with this transition to the Surrey Police Service and let's see what else we can do in regards to building up law enforcement in that city, not just when it comes to the Surrey Police Service, but perhaps a new police academy and a policing centre for excellence. Joining me now to talk about her plan is Linda Anna, Surrey City Councillor. Linda, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Jazz. So uh, you're talking uh, about a new police academy and policing centre of excellence uh, be uh, introduced or built in Surrey as part of the transition from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. Explain to me how that would work. Well, absolutely. We know for a long time the JI has not been able to produce enough new recruits, um, not because there isn't a demand for them, but they just have a capacity issue. And this isn't just for Surrey. This is for all municipal police departments. So what I'm asking and what I think the province should do is step up and provide here in Surrey a police centre of excellence where we can train all new recruits for municipal police uh, organisations throughout the province and train them right here in Surrey. It gives us an opportunity to build a centre that is state-of-the-art, that is the latest uh, technologies and training in policing, and do it here in Surrey. It will create a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. It will also allow us uh, here in Surrey to um, move the Surrey Police Service transition more quickly. As well, it will help uh, you know other police jurisdictions like VPD 
uh, be able to uh, get more of their recruits trained more quickly. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those who will tell you, look, we already have a Justice Institute in Westminster. They're responsible for training uh, police already. Why would we want to, A, build a, a, a similar sort of uh, academy in Surrey, or at the very least spend dollars, tax dollars, BC tax dollars, and moving the JI to Surrey when we already have a functioning a system and an institution that works right now in New Westminster. Why would you want to move that to Surrey? Well, the JI actually has a capacity issue, not just for uh, police training, but for other first responder training. So what I'm suggesting is let's move the policing training out of the JI, mm-hmm. move it to Surrey. It will build more capacity for other first responders. And I think every resident wants to make sure that public safety is is done very, very well. And that includes making sure that our police officers have the best possible training possible. And I think that here in Surrey, we can do it. We have the opportunity to build a facility very close to uh, to where the RCMP detachment is now and where the Surrey Police Service is. Mm-hmm. And it will be state-of-the-art and be able to uh, get more officers trained and free up spaces for other first responders uh, to get training. And when you say police academy and the policing center of excellence in Surrey, a policing center of excellence would be something like a gun range and other and other training facilities. There is that is that what you mean by a center for excellence? Absolutely, that that's part of it. Um, certainly, having a better um, uh, training facility for guns, also situation rooms. Uh, you know how to deal with um, you know better training about how to deal with mental health and addiction. Because uh, we know that uh, this is something that the police are having to deal with far, far too often. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that um, we have better training in that regard. And, you know, technology and all sorts of other things. It's not, I would see a center of excellence not just be for training new recruits, but for ongoing training for uh, members as they progress through the organizations in various uh, divisions. Mm-hmm. Um I know the. we all know that there's a significant uh, a challenge in regards to this transition for a variety of reasons. Why should BC taxpayers foot the bill just so that Surrey can finally make this transition at the end? I'm not talking about the $150 million that's been promised, but even this new, new academy and policing centre of excellence, it's more dollars coming out of BC taxpayers, uh, from BC taxpayers, when really Surrey should be handling its transition. And this shouldn't be part of that broader conversation about, well, we'll move and make that transition, but why don't you guys move the police academy and the policing centre for excellence over, over here and, and you BC taxpayers, you foot the bill. Well, I think it's a real gift to all the other municipalities because they will be able to get their police officers trained much more quickly. Uh, right now, you know, there's a waiting um, uh, to get your recruits trained. And, you know, Vancouver, by way of example, last year, uh, I believe they um, they got approval to hire 100 new officers. Well, there's not that kind of capacity at JI. This would open up new opportunities that would provide better training mm-hmm. because it would be the latest technology um, and, you know, state-of-the-art facilities. So I think that is a win-win for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, with respect to um, the $150 million, um, you know, yes, I, I do understand that, but this is a way of, you know, also uh, spreading some of the um, uh, the win, if you will, for other municipalities that have municipal police forces. Uh, final question to you, and this is specific to the transition. 
Mayor Locke basically says that she has not seen a business plan or a feasibility plan in regards to the transition, in regards to the cost, and she's asking the minister. Um, This was approved initially by the minister with the previous administration under Mr. Doug McCallum, who was mayor at the time. Who's actually responsible for a a business plan? Is it the provincial government or should the city be responsible for this transition or business plan? Well, the city sure should be. It's our police force, and I think it's really incumbent on the city to show the leadership and bring all parties together and get this done. There was a plan, um, as we know, when Mayor McCallum was in place, and the plan stopped uh, when uh, Mayor Lott got elected, um, and a new plan came out on reversing back to the RCMP. So there is a plan in place. The plan certainly needs to be dusted off brought up to speed because it does, you know, time has passed by and it needs to be revised for sure. But that's the job of the city to bring all parties together, being the provincial government, the federal government, the Surrey Police Service, the RCMP. Let's get everybody in one room and let's get it done. Mm-hmm. Each and every month that this drags on, it's costing the taxpayers $8 million or to put it on a daily basis, 266000 it is truly amazing the amount of dollars taxpayers are uh, are paying every single day uh, for this uh, for this transition or lack of transition. Perhaps the best way to describe it, Linda. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jess. Bruce Bannon, the BC United MLA for Abbotsford South, has crossed the floor to join the Conservative Party of BC. Bannon will now join uh, Conservative leader John Rustad in the legislature, and now with two members, uh, will be granted official party status. And of course, one assumes with that more money, resources, and staffing, and potential attention for and more attention for the party. Bannon was the BC United critic for emergency management and climate readiness, and was elected in 2020, and is a former Abbotsford mayor. Now, Mr. Bannon spoke to our colleague Mike Smith earlier today and Mike uh, did ask him um, if he believes other BC United MLAs would follow his path and leave the party. Take a listen. Well, I don't imagine I'm going to be on the Christmas list coming up shortly for some of them. Let's face it. I mean, um, of course, they're going to be upset, um, but there are others and I'll let them speak for themselves. I'm not the only one that is shown uh, increasing uh, discontent uh, within the party. Um, I'm not alone in that. Now, uh, Mike Smith also asked uh, Mr. Bamman uh, why he left. Take a listen. I was unable to be an advocate on behalf of those who elected me. Um, and there was one particular vote um, where it, it really wasn't even a legislative vote. And um, I was told, if you are not in favor of this vote, uh, you must leave the building. You, are, you cannot vote against it. And I just kept going back to that, and um, I was humiliated. And, and I will say, when I thought about my grandparents, I was also ashamed that I did not speak up on behalf of those in this community that wanted me to speak up on that particular issue. And Wh- which is, which issue? That's just one hey, example. Bruce, which issue is that? Which vote are you talking about there? Um, that was the divisive, um, hurtful vote, the, the wedge politics, the, the NDP put in that had to do with the convoy and um, and how the pandemic was handled. Uh, joining me now to talk about uh, today's events is Kevin Falcon, leader of the BC United Party. Mr. Falcon, thank you for joining us today. And thanks for having me, Jazz. I want to make sure I give you plenty of time to respond to a lot uh, of what Mr. Bandman's been saying, but there's lots to unpack uh, after today. First of all, your thoughts overall on how things transpired. Were you surprised at Mr. Bandman uh, making the announcement today? 
not totally surprised to to be honest. Like you know me, I'm a I'm a straight shooter. I I think that you know we've had ongoing internal management issues around Bruce. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. But look, at the end of the day, he's made a decision that he's going to have to explain to those that worked for him, raised money for him, volunteered for him, and voted for him mm-hmm. uh, in his riding of Abbotsford South. And I think that if he is so confident that uh, the move he's made is a good one, then he'll do the right thing and resign uh, and then run again uh, as a candidate for the fourth party and see how he does. What do you mean by internal management challenges? Because I think people would want to know uh, the uh, concerns or challenges you have internally that got him to this point. What do you mean by when you say internal management challenges? Well, you know, and, and I was asked that, and look, I'm not, I, I don't want to uh, just go into, I'm, I'm not going to try and badmouth a, a former colleague. I'll just say this, that I think the challenges uh, with Bruce, and, and he talks about all the things he wanted to say, well, he'll have the ability to say those now, and uh, John Rustad can enjoy uh, dealing with that, because, you know, quite frankly, um, there's a lot of uh, things that he wanted to say that uh, I think are hugely challenging uh, from you know a lot of different perspectives. I'll leave it at that, though. Look, at the end of the day, as I say, um, he's got to explain it to the people that uh, voted and elected him. And I you know, reminded him when I spoke to him, look at the history in British Columbia of those who have jumped political parties, especially in Abbotsford. It's been political suicide for every one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the decision he's made, and he's got the right to make it. Uh, when you say internal man- management challenges, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but he just talked about the trucker convoy. Uh, you know, uh, there's been talk potentially of his thoughts on our response to some of the COVID uh, vaccines. Is it safe to say you feel his perspectives, his views do not uh, align with the broad mainstream views that most British Columbians have on this issue? No, it's not even that. But what he was referring to, just so your listeners understand, is that, you know, there's a thing in in the legislature called Monday morning motions. And Mm -hmm. the NDP often put forward motions that they try to jam and wedge, you know, our party to take a stupid position. So we can change they can change the channel because they're under attack, say, for their total failure to address uh, issues around the explosion of crime or the failure of them to, uh, you know, deal with housing affordability when it's now the highest in North America and those kind of things. So what they'll do is they'll put forward a motion saying uh, we want to decry the, you know, the, the, the trucker convoy and everyone that participated in it, that kind of thing. And, and so we could just say, well, that's stupid and vote against it because we know what they're trying to do. But often what, what, what the parties do is just say, yeah, right, fine, whatever, and then just move on so that we don't give them that issue to try and uh, change the channel on. Mm-hmm. And Bruce knows that very well. Now, he's the kind of person that would like to say, uh, you know, I'm going to go and I want to make a big fuss about this and fight about it. Well, great, he can go and do that. But, you know, I've got a responsibility to make sure that we're focused on the important big issues that are really concerning British Columbians and tackling the explosion of crime, dealing with the fact that we've got the highest housing and gas prices in North America and all those other issues Mm -hmm. that people are really concerned about are where we are focusing our attention and we'll continue to do that. Do you believe there are other MLAs, like Mr. Bandman said, that are also considering leaving BC United? Uh, you know, I, I I think I would be shocked if there's others gonna that are gonna follow uh, uh, Bruce Bandman uh, over to his uh, you know his little group there. I I think it'd be very unlikely. We had a very uh, good uh, call today uh, with our caucus uh, talking about the decision, and 
trust. Anyway, I don't want to talk about caucus confidences. I'll just say that I remain very confident. We've got a very good group of people that are focused mm-hmm. and will remain focused on the big issues that are facing British Columbia. You know, people, frankly, this is politics. He can do politics. We're, we're really caring about the big issues that people are worrying about every day. All right. A two-part question for you here. Um, you know, Mr. Bannon is number two. Mr. Rustad was the first one who who um, uh, said he was joining the BC Conservatives. Uh, now, question number one: Do you regret booting out John Rustad for having uh, his opinions that he did on climate change? And uh, I guess the the second question, more than anything, is: Do you regret the name change? Because some have said because of the popularity of Mr. Polyev, that's sucking up a lot of uh, attention in regards to and helping the BC Conservatives, number one. And, and number two, uh, there's just a challenge of, of getting a new name out there in a very, uh, you know, saturated media market out there. So number one, do you regret booting up Mr. Rustad? And secondly, do you regret changing the name of the party? Okay, so first of all, on the first point, uh, you, you should understand, uh, there was no booting out needed. Uh, John made the decision that he just simply could not be part of a team and he would not commit to being part of a team. I don't mind that John has totally changed his position on climate change, because he has. I mean, it's, it's totally different than the two election campaigns he ran in and the previous positions he took. And I even said to him in caucus, you're allowed to have totally change your opinion. I don't have a problem with that. And we'll have those debates within our caucus. But at the end of the team, like any organization, if you're running a business, you say to your executive team, okay, we've had a good discussion here, lots of good contrary opinions, mm-hmm. but here's the direction we're going in, and we all agree to go there. You can't just suddenly move forward with people running in all different directions, or you're not going to win the confidence of British Columbians to be able to, you know, manage and run the province. And so, at the end of the day, John could not commit to saying, uh, you know, whatever changes of opinions that I've now formed, uh, I'm just going to go out there and keep talking about them, regardless of the impact it has on my colleagues or the party. Not acceptable. So, you know, uh, I just said to John, well, if that's your position, then you're not going to be part of the party anymore, because that's just, that's basic. Um, you know, that the, the second point you make there about the BC United name, look, I, the BC Conservative Party has no connection with the federal party. The only thing they have going for them is their name. They've been around forever. We've run against the BC Conservative Party for election after election. And between elections, they often get, their vote will sometimes go up because there's voter confusion, especially when we've got a new name called BC United. Do I regret having that new name? Absolutely not, because I actually think United is a really, really important message. Yes, it'll take time for the public to figure that out. And yes, there's some voter confusion that when they ask the question, who would you vote for? They're thinking of Pierre Polyev and the federal conservatives. That will, by the time the next election rolls around, I have no doubt that people will know exactly what BC United's all about. And when they hear Rustad and and uh, band men talk about some of the interesting subjects that they'll be talking about, mm-hmm. I guarantee you they'll be consigned to where they typically end up in elections, at that, you know, 4 to 7% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Now, election uh, is still a year away, and a year in B.C. politics is really a millennia, and campaigns do matter. Do you feel, every, after everything you've gone through uh, over the last uh, 24 hours or so, you can still convince uh, some of your MLAs to run, obviously, and during the next election campaign because of their experience, and do you still think you can attract those uh, quality new candidates that your party uh, needs? Oh, well, this uh, that is an excellent question because, you know, absolutely, like in every, you know, there's always going to be turnover of, of people and, and, you know, there's always going to be people that won't run again in a political party. And, and while we lose the experience and sometimes that's tough, but we also have the huge opportunity to bring in new candidates. And I can tell you one thing, I am just blown away by the caliber and the quality of people that are coming forward wanting to run with BC United. And I think it's because, frankly, they know that we are going to be focusing on 
the fact that nothing in British Columbia is working today. It doesn't matter what area of the economy or, or that anything the provincial government's responsible for, whether it's fighting forest fires not going well, whether it's BC ferries disaster, whether it's housing prices awful, whether it's crime in our streets out of control, drug overdoses, worst we've ever seen. I think ultimately people are going to say, you know what, this is not working. And we've got to get some people in there that have the competence Mm -hmm. to be able to get us different results. Kevin, I really appreciate uh, you talking to us. I know you have had a very busy day and continue to have one. I appreciate you making time for us. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Canada continues to grapple with uh, the housing crisis. There's no doubt uh, we have been spending a lot of time talking about international students uh, coming into Canada. Uh, Multiple provinces are pushing back on federal suggestions that an international student cap could help solve the problem. Uh, In the last few weeks, uh, Immigration Minister Mark uh, Miller, Housing Minister Sean Fraser and Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc have all indicated that Ottawa is considering a cap on student intake. Now, uh, the province of British Columbia, along with New Brunswick, Newfoundland uh, as well have said they haven't been consulted on what that would look like, uh, but uh, it is an ongoing issue. Joining me now to talk a little bit about our reliance on international students here in British Columbia and across the country is Melissa Chirino. She's a chairperson of the BC Federation of Students, and they've just uh, put out a report called International Education in BC, Keeping the Post-Secondary System Afloat. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, lots to talk about here. Uh, and we've already said that, look, uh, we've gone from, uh, you know, I think it was uh, about 220,000 students, international students, 10 years ago. We're well past 900,000 a year now in this country. We uh, Those students used to generate about $8 billion a year for our economy. Now it's $30 billion. We are very much reliant on international students. Um why do you think our system has become so reliant, our post-secondary system, so reliant on international students? I mean, if you go back to when um, there was cuts to education, mm-hmm. um, there was tuition freeze, and then um, we put a cap on domestic student fees, but we didn't actually put a cap on international fees. So looking at all the cuts that happened, we just filled these gaps with international fees and have continued to do that. Um, nothing has changed since then. And um, in fact, um, these tuition fees have gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I think at this point, like we've been relying too much on international student fees and we haven't actually thought about like how do we fix the post-secondary system. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, we did a story last week where in Ontario for the first time this school year, international students, because they'll pay $20,000, $30,000 a year for tuition, if not even more in some cases, which subsidizes the domestic Mm -hmm. population. But for the first time in Ontario, international students will put more money into the system than the actual provincial government. Uh, Where are we in British Columbia in regards to that ratio? Um, I believe we're around um, between 23% to 32% mm-hmm. um, when it comes to reliance on international fees. That's still, I mean, that's yeah, m- roughly yeah. a quarter, if not a little bit more, right? So yeah, that's, a, that's significant. Um, is this dangerous for us here in British Columbia to do that? It sure is. Um, and that's something that we've already, like, um, we've been warning um, the government, the public about this issue um, prior to um, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic only showed us how... Um, how it can be dangerous. So an example of this is at the, the Okanagan College. Um, they lost about 25% of their students, which was roughly 280 students. Mm-hmm. And they lost $2.3 million in um, tuition fee revenue from them. Um, in contrast to domestic students, that they lost 900 And this was only two 
like two million. So um, only a few international students can kind of affect um, how much money um, the school loses. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate that like we have to use this argument when talking to government about like the money because at the end of the day, it, these are students that are putting so much money into coming coming to Canada just to get their education. So, mm-hmm. but that just shows how any big loss mm-hmm. um, of students can affect our education system. So uh, I was looking at your report yesterday. We had a barge Dahan, and we were talking a little bit about uh, this report. And I'm amazed, particularly schools like Langara and Kwantlen, even UBC, how reliant they are. And regards to the dollars, sometimes it's a small amount of uh, students. But, uh, you know, Langara, I think it's about uh, $61 million in tuition that, uh, sorry, $61,000 a year in international tuition alone uh, for a four-year course. And so it's about 16000 a year. Um, if we were to cut, as the ministers have said, the variety, various liberal ministers have said, they're going to cut and put a cap on these students, what's going to happen to our colleges and universities in regards to funding? Um, I believe at that point, the government should, should definitely look into, you know, like what are the solutions to actually properly finding education? Because I fear that if we were, if we were to take away all international students, that the post-secondary education would just collapse. Um, they're funding, they're putting so much funding into post-secondary that um, if that were to go, mm-hmm. I don't know what would happen to the post-secondary system. Do you think we've devalued education in Canada because of our reliance? It's, and, and forget about just the public institution, <laughs> which is about 25, 26. We've got 150, 200 private, sec- private universities who provide no information, don't provide any housing. <laughs> And they almost seem like they're diploma mills. Mm-hmm. Is it just me or do we somehow have, somehow have devalued an education in Canada? I mean, we're focusing more on the amount of enrollment we're getting um, when it comes to students coming rather than the outcome of, you know, like the education, like what, what they've learned, what are they putting into the workforce? Mm-hmm. I think we're, we've definitely moved away from um, looking at post-secondary as, as a way to make society a better place for everyone, for people to get their, um, get their skills in. We've really moved away from that, I'd say. Uh, I'm looking at the numbers here based on yesterday, Kwantlen's 37% of Kwantlen, the student body, are international students. Langara College, 32%. Uh, and to get a four-year Bachelor of Business Administration degree, you're looking at in Langara at about $66,000. And so that averages out to $16,000 a year just in tuition, never mind living costs and everything else that comes with it. So we are really milking the system. Now, uh, what are they doing in Emily Carr College? You had brought that up with yeah. me on, on, during the commercial break. Yeah, so um, last year in December, um, their Board of Governors um, put forward a proposal of having a 30% increase for new incoming international students mm-hmm. and a 10% increase for current students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got, that got passed, unfortunately. Even um, those students, you know, came out and really um, um, talk about how that, that, that would gravely affect the college. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's what happened last year. They did that. So mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the day, you, you're thinking is, look, as a student, we just need more tax dollars to be going into the system for domestic students and just reduce the or cap the amount of international students to come in? I think we need to fix the problems that ha- like the mistakes that we've made in the past. And we have had major um, um, cuts to education in the past. We haven't fixed that ever, ever since. Mm-hmm. We, in fact, started to rely on, on, on fees, on international fees in general, um, to fund the education. So I think if we want to move forward to have a great workforce in BC and really support young people, support um, future works, workers of BC, we, we really need to go back and make, look at what can make education better in BC and in Canada in general – 
Mm-hmm. And that just means fixing the mistakes from the past and actually funding education. Yeah, it's it's going to take a while. It took us a while to get to this point. Like mm-hmm. I said, over the last 10 years ago, <laughs> from 200,000 plus international students coming to mm-hmm. this country, now we're at 900,000. Mm-hmm. You can't just shut the t- tap off right mm-hmm. away because I think a lot of our public institutions yeah. would be definitely in a lot of trouble. Melissa, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. Bruce Spanman, the BC United MLA for Abbotsford South, has crossed the floor to join the Conservative Party of BC. Spanman will now join the BC Conservative leader uh, John Rustad in the legislature. And now now with two members, uh, the party will be granted official party status, which means more money, resources, staff, and attention for the party. Mr. Banwin was the BC United critic for emergency management and climate readiness. Uh, Mr. Banman, after his announcement, spoke to our colleague Mike Smith earlier today and asked why he decided to leave his party. Take a listen. I was unable to be an advocate on behalf of those who elected me. Um, and there was one particular vote um, where it, it really wasn't even a legislative vote. And um, I was told, if you are not in favor of this vote, uh, you must leave the building. You, are, you cannot vote against. And I just kept going back to that. And um, I was humiliated. And, and I will say, when I thought about my grandparents, I was also ashamed that I did not speak up on behalf of those in this community that wanted me to speak up on that particular issue. And which, which, is, which issue? That's just one hey, example. Bruce, which issue was that? Which vote are you talking about there? Um, that was the divisive, um, hurtful vote, the, the wedge politics that the NDP put in that had to do with the convoy and, um, and how the pandemic was handled. That was uh, Bruce Banman. Now, Mr. Banman was also asked by Mike Smith, uh, are there other MLAs in the BC United Caucus who would consider uh, following him uh, and joining the BC Conservatives? Take a listen. Well, I don't imagine I'm going to be on the Christmas list coming up shortly for some of them. Let's face it. I mean, um, of course, they're going to be upset, um, but there are others and I'll let them speak for themselves. I'm not the only one that is shown uh, increasing uh, discontent uh, within the party. Um, I'm not alone in that. That is Bruce Banman. Well, joining me now is Kareem Alam. He's a partner at Fairview Strategies and a former campaign lead for Kevin Falcon's leadership race for the BC United Party. He's also the former chief of staff to the mayor of Vancouver and ran the campaign for ABC Vancouver as well. So he's been around uh, political parties for a very long time and he knows what it takes to build coalitions. Kareem, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. So first of all, uh, lots transpired over the last 12 to 24 hours. Your thoughts on how things have rolled out. What's this mean uh, for the BC United Party? What's this mean for BC politics moving forward? Well, starting with BC politics, um, Maxime Bernier's PPC party now has a full-fledged franchise here in the province of British Columbia under the BC Conservatives. Let there be no confusion. Really? For, that let, far? That far. Let there be no confusion of voters. That this is not a party that is aligned with Pierre Polyev and the federal Conservatives. This is a party that is aligned with Maxime Bernier. Uh, Bannerman, in, in the comments that you just uh, uh, played back for your audience, uh, was starting to talk about convoys. Um, and he probably holds views that are reminiscent of those who think that there's conspiracy theories with Bill Gates and vaccines. And um, he's joining a party that had some very intolerant views uh, in the Mount Pleasant by-election uh, when it came to the LGBTQ community. Uh, it's also a party um, that uh, its leader espouses climate change denial as a core part of his policies. These are not mainstream uh, views. These are not the views of the Federal Conservative Party. These are the views of the PPC and its newest franchise member, Bruce Bannerman. 
Um, what got us here, in your opinion? Was it uh, Kevin Falcon booting out John Rustad? Was that the main issue? Or do you think, fundamentally, uh, it was just the way they handled Mr. Mr. Bandman individually? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a good question. I think there's been a fracturing in the coalition uh, uh, since Gordon Campbell's departure. Um, uh, that leadership race in 2011-12 between Christy Clark and F- Kevin Falcon for the first time introduced federal politics into the BC Liberal coalition. Historically, been viewed as an economic one. Uh, forestry sector, forest, uh, 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 fisheries, uh, mining, uh, executives and association heads came together in this coalition behind Gordon Campbell. And that was really the underpinning of the, the BC Liberal Party under him. When that federal leadership or when that provincial leadership came, it broke down along federal uh, allegiances. The Liberals supported Christy Clark, the Conservatives uh, supported Kevin Falcon in that leadership race. And ever since then, it's been a real struggle for the party to uh, hold it all together. Um, Kevin uh, is from the more moderate end of the Conservative Party and just found John Rustad's views on climate change denial intolerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, that division on this very, very important subject uh, led to uh, Kevin's expulsion of, uh, of John Rustad from the caucus. And mm-hmm. this is just going to be a chain of those who hold that view in this party are now going to find themselves increasingly drawn towards the, uh, the BC Conservative Party. I'm oversimplifying things, but generally it's viewed as whether it's the SOCRED party, the BC Liberals, BC United, uh, the Free Enterprise Coalition's core goal is keep the socialist hordes out. I'm oversimplifying things. I freely admit that. But generally it's a coalition of federal liberals and federal conservatives. They didn't always like each other, didn't agree on everything. But if we stay together, you know, two-thirds of the time in this province, the last 60 years, history has told us, they win government. They win a majority, right? Uh, uh, how this conversation that's occurring now? It seems to me it's about conservatives fighting conservatives, whether it be BC United or or BC Conservatives. There seems to be no federal liberal within this conversation or debate. It certainly appears that way. Like, is the coalition just broken in your mind? And can it can, like can, can this? Whether it's BC United or BC Conservatives, can they actually win a majority based on what, what's happening right now? There will be no majority. Uh, there will be no victory for the BC United or the BC Conservatives so long as the coalition remains divided. Um, but broken is one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is also the success of David Eby. Let's also understand the NDP itself is a coalition. It's a coalition of private sector labor, public sector labor, social activists, environmental activists, and now even growingly more a lot of federal liberals who have been historically the swing voters. They'll either go to the Social Credit or the NDP or they'll go to Vision Vancouver or the NPA. Mm-hmm. And where they swing, that's who wins. And right now, David Eby's done a very good job of presenting himself as a, as a thoughtful centrist um, with broad appeal to those federal liberal voters. So it's not necessarily what's going on inside the BC United Party that's pushing liberals away. It's what David Eby's doing to bring federal liberals into his coalition. Um, so uh, th- th- this NDP, the 1990s MB- NDP, one would say was ideologically based, uh, much more sort of focused on the cause. This one, as you say, Mr. Eby, and, and I guess the, broadly the NDP, even under John Horgan, said, look, you want to hold on to power. You've got to be much more broader in your politics and in your philosophy. That does mean pipelines will get approved. That means you do engage. It may be difficult with the business community. I mean, it seems like they've learned the lessons of 16 years of not being in power. This is a this is a government uh, that was started under John Horgan that has been remarkably and surprisingly to, to many observers uh, responsive to the business community. They've been responsive to... Uh, voters in the suburbs, in the swing areas, and they've been very responsive 
to going out there and understanding how the federal liberal dynamic in BC politics uh, is at play and, and building up a platform to attract those federal liberals. So you, you, you're exactly right. that That's exactly what's, uh, uh, what's happened, is that this is an NDP that's not like the NDP of the 90s. Um, it is an NDP that is responsive, thoughtful, um, and very evidence-based in its policymaking. Um, there aren't too many things outside the, you know, the CBA and some of, some of these other earlier policies that John Horgan brought in that comes across as ideological. It seems to be all pretty well-founded and broadly supported policies. Mm-hmm. Just joining us, we are speaking to uh, Kareem Alam. He's a partner at Fairview Strategy and a former campaign lead for Kevin Falcon's leadership race for BC United. He's also been the former chief of staff to the mayor of Vancouver. Um, That's two BC United members that have now left to join the Conservative Party of BC. Um, Has the death spiral for BC United begun or do you think, uh, look, Mr. Falcon can still hold on and yes, it's a huge challenge before them, but they can get past this point. It's too hard to, to, to predict politics in the future. I remember Jim Prentice, uh, the late Jim Prentice, uh, called an early election because he was so far ahead in the polls. Uh, the progressive conservatives or the conservative party in Alberta had never lost an election um, that it had fielded candidates in. And what happens? He loses the election unexpectedly. So things can turn on a dime. Campaigns matter. Policies matter. Um, there are a lot of economic headwinds that... Um, really haven't filtered down to uh, 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 the average person in a magnificently, spectacularly devastating way. Uh, We're all feeling the impacts of high interest rates and what's that doing to housing affordability. But these are issues that are generally seen to be outside of the control of the the province. But those headwinds can catch, you know, help you catch fire on some other things too. Uh, So it might be too early to say, but certainly it's not great. If uh, I was working in David Eby's office, and I'm not, um, I think today was a good day. Uh, what's that old adage in politics that, you know, when your friends are fighting or your, your, your enemies are fighting, stay out of the way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it looks like smooth sailing and clear waters for the NDP in the next election. Um, and it's really going to be up to the BC Conservatives and the BC United to decide how easy they want to make it for David Eby in the next election. Yeah, I did say earlier, I mean, a year in BC politics is a millennia and campaigns do matter, but... Boy, I don't know how you dig dig yourself out of this one. It's a lot of the problems seem to be self inflicted as well, just with the name change, uh, and just with what Mr. Polygib is doing in regards to helping uh, BC Conservatives. Now, I got to tell you this: I was I've been talking about this potentially happening for about last month or so. Uh, and Keith Baldry and I were joking uh, earlier today about the fact that we've been having this conversation privately, and now sort of it's all sort of come to fruition to a certain degree. And as I was grabbing. Um, my uh, McDonald's coffee at the drive-thru uh, this morning, I somehow uh, <laughs> just jumbles of sentences and I put them into into a poem. And I think I'm going to read it. Are you going to read it for us? I'll read it for oh you. my God. And I get, I get the only live viewing of this poem. That's right. I'm excited. Actually, Stephen, can we uh, get some mood music here playing? Uh, for, oh, oh yeah. Oh. This is good. Is that Mozart or Beethoven? It's, it's, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know which one. Okay, it's, it's Mozart. Mozart. Okay. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> here you go. There once was a man named Bruce whose commitment was fast and loose. He pledged his support to a man named Lee, but soon he would flee. He saw a soaring falcon and promised his loyalty and support. But today a new shiny bauble came his way, so why stay? Alas, MLA colleagues soon learned little Bruce was gone, claiming he's now a proud 
BC Con. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, that's... Uh, and, and you did that getting coffee at McDonald's. I, I know. I got the coffee and I parked and I said, I don't know what happened. I was just thinking about this. There's, there's some satire. I, I think that's going to get quite a bit of play. <laughs> anyway, I just tapped it out on my phone um, at the McDonald's parking lot. So there you go. The McDonald's parking lot poet laureate. I, 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 I love it. And uh, the Nobel Committee, I'm sure, will come calling. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about... Um, the election next year, potentially. Yeah. How do you convince your MLA colleagues to stay and run next time? One. And how do you attract really good candidates when you're languishing in the polls and you just had two of your members either boot it out or just leave? Well, a couple of thoughts. Uh, number one, um, John Rustad uh, might have peaked too, po- too early in the polls. Um, the uh, challenge that John Rustad now has is he's for this so far at this point, he's escaped any media scrutiny, and there's one constant in politics, and that's the media will do its job. Um, so he's now going to have to account uh, uh, for his comments on climate. He's going to have to account for his co- comments on LGBTQ issues. He's going to have to account for his comments on trucker convoys and, and, and vaccines. And people might quickly decide they don't like what they see with John Rustad, and there might be a rush back to uh, the BC United. That would be a very optimistic view. Um, and the BC United itself is going to have to work and do those things that you exactly said. Go out and recruit good candidates, work hard, um, raise money, and overcome what I think is actually a, a, real, uh, a real issue and probably has escaped a, a little bit of conversation today, which is the brand of, of the party. The, the name change, nobody knows what a BC United is. Um, uh, you took a very powerful, probably the Coca-Cola in terms of branding for... Uh, uh, po- political parties in in, in, in in Canada and you wiped it away and you named yourself RC Cola and nobody knows what RC Cola is. Yeah, I mean, it, you raise a very good point. Um, you've got to basically get the Conservatives and the Federal Liberals together and rename it again. Maybe call it the BC Liberals. <laughs> that, that's actually that's actually a great idea. Yes, no, John, uh, John Rustin and Kevin Falcon should get together, start a new party, maybe call it the BC Liberals. <laughs> Uh, but it still doesn't overcome the fact that uh, they've got to do something to appeal back to those swing voters, which will be in this next election, the federal liberals. And right now, the federal liberals seem quite comfortable and content uh, in David Eby's party. Wow. Well, they say, may you live in interesting times, and we certainly do when it comes to BC politics. Uh, that is for sure. Kareem Alam, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jazz. We spent a lot of time on this program talking about the shenanigans of BC politics, specifically Bruce Bandman crossing the floor to join the Conservative Party of BC. But we have not touched the other raging issue, and that's Premier Eby's hate for a certain band. Uh, Jerry, Jerry, Mayor Judson joins us. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we haven't touched that today. I think we need no, to No, and I think this it. is the issue of the day. This is insane. This has sparked <laughs> outrage. Mean, I, we've just ruined the show. <laughs> we focused on the wrong I think you, I think you focused on the wrong issue. What a, this, is the, this is the bipartisan issue. I don't even think it's a bipartisan issue. Who doesn't like this band? Actually, uh, he did do a little like uh, Q&A video situation on Instagram, and this is how this information came to light. And I do mean this in jest, but I may have used AI to see what it would be but, like if he really liked the band. And so we want to clarify, he said he didn't like Fleetwood Mac. He said he didn't like Fleetwood Mac, Jazz. This is ridiculous. How, how are they offensive? That's the thing. I, I don't know. I have no idea. But uh, yeah, listen to this cute little clip I put together. I have a deep, uh, dark political secret, uh, which is not a popular one uh, and is a bit of a political risk to go into, but I am not. I repeat, I am not a Fleetwood Mac fan. I have tried I respect the band, 
I respect the people who like the band, but I do not like the band. They haven't done anything to me. Uh, but I cannot enjoy them. I'm sorry, everybody. I can't. That's AI. That's uh, if David Eby was like super into Fleetwood Mac. He did not sing Dreams, but I wish he would. Who doesn't like Fleetwood Mac? Who doesn't like Fleetwood Mac? But it's interesting um, that politicians uh, feel they need to go and speak about issues that generally they don't really need to be talking about. Which uh, seems to be the theme theme of the day with this one, because in the same Instagram Q&A session, uh-huh. um, and he's following the footsteps of Justin Trudeau, because Justin Trudeau did ask Taylor Swift to pretty, pretty, pretty please come to Canada. And that was a piece. She's got six shows in Toronto. Uh-huh. But uh, David Eby, he, does, he did beg Taylor Swift to come to BC specifically. Ms. Swift, uh, it's David Eby, Premier of British Columbia. I'm not accustomed to begging, <laughs> but for my own uh, constituency of my loving and beautiful wife uh, and uh, my son, Ezra, uh, please come to Vancouver, British Columbia. We'll treat you well. Uh, I, I don't, guess I don't have to tell you you're going to sell the place out. Uh, and we'll be thrilled to have you out here. Uh, bring your heroes tour to British Columbia. You won't regret it. And uh, like many people, you might even stay. Jeez, why did he need to do that? Like, is there some great? I mean, know that we got we got a lot of Swifty fans. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of Swifty fans in this office. Let's be honest. But mm-hmm. but she's going to be in Toronto for what five concerts? Well, like six concerts, and I don't understand. Like, I don't listen. I don't really see what all the fuss is about with Taylor Swift. I'm not like a big. I'm not a Swifty. But like on behalf of the Swifties who, in an affordability, I'm going to bring this back to politics. Affordability crisis can't afford maybe to fly cross country basically yeah. from here to Toronto to see Taylor Swift. That's true. I mean, we haven't been lacking um, big stars coming. And Beyonce was here this That's week. That's true. Beyonce was here. Drake Cole, was here. Drake was here. Coldplay's coming. True, mean, true, right? true, true. So it's not what we're lacking. But yeah, no Taylor. But it's amazing that uh, Justin Trudeau also went out of his way. I mm-hmm. guess there is. I mean, I don't know if their polling shows it or whatever it may <laughs> the be. The Swifty contingent. There is something <laughs> that uh, some, somebody tells these elected officials, you should comment on this. I guess it's a relate, relatability issue. I think it? so. I think because, I mean, what we're talking about. But actually, I'm going to put you on the spot again. I keep doing this to you. Is there a band that you think is overrated that you can't quite get into that everyone else seems to like? Like, uh, like that- if you didn't like Fleetwood Mac, I mean, that's ridiculous, but... <laughs> No, I mean, I there's there's um, there's an old song, and I'm dating myself, that I just never understood why that song was popular. It's um, uh, I, it's gonna come to me. It's uh, it was just it's on the tip of my tongue. No, no, you oh, put no. me on the spot. I know I'm the worst. I'll say um, I can't quite get into Rush. I yes, understand. I, yeah, that would that would be one. Okay, perfect for sure, for sure. And everyone loves him, and I understand. I also can't get into Ed Sheeran. I I, I see it, and I okay. want what everyone else has. I want that yeah. feeling that they seem to have for Ed Sheeran because they yeah. go nuts. He was just here. Yeah. They go nuts for Ed Sheeran. And I'm like, I want to feel what you feel, but I just can't. There's no. not there for me. There's like, there's some heavy metal bands. That, like uh, I was at the Rod Stewart concert a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheap Trick was the opening. Act. I, oh, yes. I just could not get into <gasps> Cheap Trick. And you we can't get really, into Cheap Trick? We, got, we were like really good seats in our city. It's a diehard fans. <laughs> 
And they're just looking at me going, are you crazy? Like, I just couldn't get into it. I just couldn't get into no it. Like, way. it's just like, what is this? No way. They're probably yeah. like the best live band of like the last well, several decades. But yeah, I guess maybe the, not so much anymore. Yeah, maybe. I saw a couple a bunch of senior citizens <laughs> running around. Senior citizens. Yeah, it was. It, I just couldn't get into it. I just That's could not. That's fair. fair. Cheap Trick was just was not doing the trick. See, there you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. <laughs>